There is very few times that I'm out of words. Um, thank you. This is just, uh, as a youth pastor that can't talk, this is bad now. <laughs> Dr. Wisby, um, this, this thank you so much. You will never know in a hundred thousand years how much this means to me. Uh, La Sierra um, was definitely one of the changing points in my life for my ministry. Uh, for so long, I was taught not to ask questions. And in the military, you know, we don't ask questions, we just do. But when I got to La Sierra, it was the exact opposite. You better ask questions and understand why. And that has literally been the changing point in my life. Well, um, I want to, first of all, thank the graduates here. Y'all look to your left and look to your right and simply say, we did it. <laughs> and I just want y'all to be proud of yourself and very proud of this moment. Um, I have some special people that are here with me today. My uh, wife, Pastor Cara, uh, my brother and his family, uh, their first time ever hearing me speak. And so this is just such, just everything has just come together for this to be such a special day. And Pastor Chris, thank you so much for allowing me to be able to speak from the pulpit here. And finally, I want to thank Dr. Wisby for inviting me to be part of this special weekend. When I graduated from here, I never thought in 100,000 years that I would end up being a speaker. And I can truly say, as I've already said, that La Sierra has been one of the highlights in my life. The compassion of the faculty and the leaders went, what we would say in the military, beyond the call of duty. But let me tell you all this. I first met Dr. Wisby my freshman year at Portland Adventist Academy while he was a young youth pastor there in Portland. He was asked a few times to uh, help teach Bible class. What I remember the most is that after class, my best friend at the time, Terry, and I would sit down with Randall and ask questions about the Bible. What he didn't know, we were doing that because we could get out of math class. And so I just want to thank you for teaching me to play hooky. Thank you so much. <laughs> but that friendship has now lasted close to 40 years. I have seen Randall as a youth pastor. I've seen him as a professor. I've seen him as a university president of several places. And there is one consistent thing that I can say is that Dr. Wisby has been consistent for his passion of young people. And I just want to thank you so much for that passion and for the ones like me that you've inspired throughout the years. Thank you. Now, people often ask me, um, what was it like to work in the White House? You know, I had the chance of working for three presidents. I'm an old man. I started with Reagan, his second term, then President George Bush, the father, and then President Bill Clinton. Those were the three presidents that I worked with. Now, let me tell you this. This is a secret, and I promise this works. If you want to make a Secret Service agent laugh, all you have to say is two words, and I don't care how serious they are. You just say these two words, Terry Johnson. <laughs> and you'll see, they'll start, <clears throat> and then they'll just start laughing or just, well, let me get out of here. Well, let me tell you the reason why. Well, I'm known as a very famous speaker in DC, but it's not the kind of speaking you're thinking about. 
Well, when I went out to try out for the president's honor guard at the White House, in those days, we would go 50 at a time and they would just choose five out of the 50. And you're there for 12 weeks of training. In fact, the sergeant says in the very beginning, my job is to get 45 of you to quit. That's my job in life. And so I was just so shocked that I was part of this group. And so I'm there like everybody else. And, and sure enough, it was just absolutely tough training. The first week, 10 guys quit. They said, I can't do this. And I'll never forget at the end of that first week, the sergeant, Sergeant Jones, he says, fellas, I'm going to give you a word of advice. The rule is this. You're never allowed to speak to the president of the United States unless he speaks to you first. Because he's going to be serious. Sometimes you'll, you'll be holding his briefcase or his notes, and the last thing he needs is an airman talking his ear off. Now, do you all, all understand that? And we all nodded, yes. And then I thought some, and I slowly raised my hand. He says, Johnson, what don't you understand about that simple command? I said, well, if the president does talk to us, well, could we ask him a question? He said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So I took that as a yes. So I went out that day and I got a three by five card and a little golf pencil and I slipped it in my little pocket. And every time we would have a break, I would think of a question I would ask the president of the United States and I would write it down. And it was so bad, I was in the cafeteria. I would start writing questions down. And all the guys would laugh. Look at Johnson, he's writing another one down. And all I can tell you, from the end of that week, I had 17 questions that I would ask the President of the United States. 17 questions. Well, I made it to week number two. Another 10, 15 guys dropped out. I'm still there. Well, at the end of that week, the same sergeant, Sergeant Bill, he came up and he said, there's going to be a fancy banquet downtown, and we need someone to open up a door. Where's that Johnson at? He's always so happy all the time. He says, Johnson, you're probably going to see a senator or a congressman, so you better be in your best duty, your best behavior. So we go downtown to the Hilton Hotel, and all I can tell you, it was the fanciest thing I had ever seen in my life. Every person you can imagine was in the room, evening gowns, stars and stripes, and my job was very easy. They had a platform. There was a door with kind of this black see-through curtain thing, and all I had to do was to stand by the door, and there was a gentleman in the very back, when he gave the official nod, open up the door and let the congressperson or senator in. And when they're done speaking, let them back out the same way. So I'm standing there by this door and I'm looking at all these famous people. All of a sudden, a Secret Service agent walks by me, goes on the stage, takes the microphone and simply says this. We need everyone to evacuate the room at this time. Ladies, take your purses with you. Band, sit your instruments down. Evacuate the room. So people got up and they started rushing out. And then they brought in bomb-sniffing dogs. So I started to leave too. And he says, no, 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 airman, you stay there by that door. <laughs> I'm thinking this place is about to blow up. I'm the only one in here. <laughs> I'm horrified. Dogs are sniffing, they looking under tables and stuff. I'm just literally shaking. Well, after around an hour or so, they started setting up metal detectors, just like at the airport at all the entrances. I'm still standing by the door. Well, people start coming in. They're telling them to take your seats, fill up the place, take your seats. Place fills up. They finally give me the signal. I open up the door. I'm so excited. I've only been in D.C. for two weeks. I'm already going to see a senator or a congressperson. Well, instead, Ronald Reagan steps out. He had decided just one hour before that he wanted to make a surprise visit. 
And what was so historical, this is where he was shot four years earlier in his first time back. So he had a few moments before he would go on the stage. So he's looking around and the color guards, they're facing his back with the flags. All of a sudden, Reagan looks at me. He looks at my name tag and he simply says, Airman Johnson, how are you doing today? My chance to talk to the President of the United States. 17 questions. And it was so bad, the color guard, they're facing Reagan's back and I could see them. They're saying, that's that Johnson guy. This is going to be good. So they're holding the flags, and you can see their flags shaking. They're laughing so much. I look at the president. I simply said, Ronald, Mr. Honor, it's a, sir, it's, I, I, it's, a, it's a, so honor to meet me, you. I couldn't get my name out of my mouth. It got so bad that Reagan starts laughing. You're so funny. You're the funniest guy. Reagan goes up on the stage. People gave him a standing ovation. He's back where he started from. And then Reagan starts on the speech. I'm not giving up. And all I remember is that his hand was in the air. And Reagan looked over my direction. In the middle of his famous comeback speech, he stops and starts laughing. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can't look at Johnson over there. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I caused the President of the United States to mess up in his famous comeback speech. And to this very day, the Secret Service shows that video to tell them this is the reason you're not allowed to speak to the President. In fact, the video is called Presidential Bloopers. Volume 2, you'll see a younger me making Reagan mess up. And so that's my claim to Spain for speaking there in Washington, D.C. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we start here today. Dear God, once again, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be here with my family. Lord, this campus inspired me so much. And I pray that it will do the same for my brothers and sisters here. May they leave this weekend and go and set the world on fire for you. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a friend here, Maria. She heard me share for the chapel and she said, Terry, I really want you to share some of the things because I want my brother who is here to be able to hear some of this. And so Maria, thank you so much. And for your brother, Paul, thank you for being here. Words matter. There's a Jewish rabbi by the name of Yejiba Berg. And he says this famous quote, Words are the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively using words of despair. Words have energy and power with the ability to help, to heal, to hinder, to hurt, to harm, to humiliate, and to humble. Words have power. Bartimaeus understood this. In fact, the scripture says that Bartimaeus was on the road begging and he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth coming his way. Bartimaeus used his words to cry out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. 
because of the power of his words, the scriptures says, Jesus stood still. Friends, what an example to us is that our words have power. In fact, I've learned that if you don't make a choice with your words, many times a choice will be made for you. If you stay silent when you see injustice and you don't use that choice of the power of your words, whether that help is for you or someone else, you have given up an awesome opportunity to use your words. Bartimaeus used his voice. He used his words to make his situation different. Graduates, if there was ever a time for you to use your words, that time is now. We need your words for fairness. We need your words for love. We need your love, your words for justice for all people. In fact, in the very words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when it comes to justice, he says that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Use your words for good. Let me share with you a story of two teachers. They're both were second grade teachers. One used her words carelessly and the other used her words to inspire and to give hope. Now I have to take you on a journey right now. If you can imagine a little baby, and let me tell you what's unique about this baby. When he was born, and he was born naturally, he weighed 11 pounds and 10 ounces. His poor mother, that's exactly right. Now, everything about this little fellow was great. I mean, he was energetic. He loved people. He loved to laugh. Well, by the time he got to the second grade, things started to change. You see, the school system that he became part of decided to save money, and they created what they call an, a, a mega elementary school. And that simply meant they closed down several little ones and they combined it all together. And the teacher went from 17 students to 41 students by herself. Can you just imagine that education majors? 41 second graders with no teacher's aid. All in order to save money. So this poor teacher, she decided that she would divide the class into three sections. The very first section for kids who could just learn, two or three desks, kids who could just learn like that. The second section was for kids she had to work with a little bit longer. And then the third section were kids who were in their own world and she got time, she would get to them. Well, this little fellow who loved life, loved people, loved to talk, was in the very front row. Well, one day the teacher was up writing something on the chalkboard and she turned around and simply said this, I need one of the students to come up here and show the other kids how to write their ABCs. And this little fellow started thinking, don't pick me. Don't pick me. You know exactly what happens when you start thinking that. You come up here. Don't really come up here, but. <laughs> so the little fellow came up 
She gave him the chalk. He's just shaking. He writes an A. And when he wrote his B, all the kids started laughing. And when he wrote his C, they really started laughing. He was writing his letters backwards. The teacher discovered right there and then the little fellow had been faking it. Every time there was reading assignments, he had to go to the bathroom. Since she's trying to manage 40 kids, she didn't worry about him and all the stuff. So she moved him to the second row and then to the third row. And then eventually, the little fellow ended up in the back of the class in the corner with a coloring book. And all he would do was color all day. Now, I'll be honest with you, the little kid loved it. Wow, school is awesome. And he would just be back there coloring. All the other kids would be so mad. Why does he get to color? And he would just wave at them and keep coloring away. <laughs> he loved school. And then something happened. That teacher allowed the world of stress to pressure her to use words that she should have never said to a little fellow. You see, one day a teacher was coming in from another class and she saw the little fellow back there coloring and she simply said, why is he back there coloring not with the rest of the kids? And the words that that little kid heard those many years ago would never leave his mind. She simply said, oh, he's a little retarded. He's a little stupid. I'm just, I'm just letting him sit back there until the end of the school year and then they can get him out because I don't have time to fill out that paperwork to get him out of here. Words have power. From that moment on, the little fellow wouldn't even color anymore. She would give him crayons, he would break them and throw them at her. She would give him a coloring book, he would simply rip it and just sit there with his arms folded all day long. Finally, the teacher didn't know what else to do, and so she had him go see a psychologist that was part of the school system. And after meeting with the psychologist around three weeks or so, the psychologist said, there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, you're one of the brightest students. Just say your ABCs. You and that teacher just have a conflict, and I'll get you in another class. And the little fella said, A, B, C. And once again, he froze. Well, the teacher... Then the psychologist wrote a recommendation to the Portland School Board. If you were to visit my family home today, my mom still has the letter. And it simply says that Terry L. Johnson is mentally incompetent. He will never be able to learn past the third grade. Our suggestion is to take him out of the school system and hopefully by the age of 18, he will learn a steel art trade and be able to fit back into society. Because of his violence, visiting rights every six months signed the superintendent of the city of Portland. Friends, you had the teacher saying that my situation was hopeless. Now you have a psychologist and to top it off, the highest school official in the state of Oregon at that time agreed. But let me tell you the secret. Terry had a secret weapon. And let me tell you what that secret weapon was. A praying mama. There are many of you here today. 
There are many of you here today, I don't care if you're nine or 90, you're here because somebody prayed for you. Never think you were so smart and you knew what to do. Do you know that you're only where you were because there was a grandmother that prayed for you many years ago? Lord be with my child. There was an aunt, there was a grandfather who prayed for you. Many of us are living off those prayers, even though that person may be resting in Jesus now, we are still living off those prayers that they did for us. Never forget that. Those of you that have graduated, don't think it was you by yourself. You were so smart, you did it. Do you know? There were people in your churches who may never ever had kids in their life, but every time they saw you, the Lord would place in their heart to pray for her. And that's the reason many of us are where we are today. You see, I like to say that my mama didn't give up. She decided to look up. So she went out and got a phone book. It was so funny. I was speaking at an elementary school the other day, Dr. Wisby, and I said, my mom got a phone book, and the kids are looking at me. I'm like, what's wrong? And then Don told me, you don't know what a phone book is, do you? No. That's when you know you're getting old, trust me. But mother got out the phone book, and she wrote down all the schools that she can find, over 110 of them. She still has that list. And that summer, she would go through that list and call the schools up, can you please let my little boy in? And my mom is so honest. They would say, well, why can't he go back to his old school? And mom would say, well, they say he can't learn. Well, who said he can't learn? The superintendent. Superintendent of what? Of the school district. They would say, do you know that's my boss's boss's boss? And they would hang up the phone. Mom would draw a line, but I remember the most of that summer is that she would put her hand on my head and pray. Just like Bartimaeus, she would use those words, Jesus, have mercy on my little boy. Mom went through the entire list. Every single school said no. Well, finally, a neighbor told her about a little Christian school, a non-denomination called Columbia Christian, and mom went over there and she met with the principal and the principal heard the whole story. And finally he said, well, you know, our class, I could never take a kid like that here, but, but let me do this. Let's at least let's just pray. And mom was thankful for at least that he took time to pray with her. But as a result of that prayer, he accidentally, which I don't say it was accident, he left his door open. And as a result of leaving his door open, the second grade teacher, Mrs. Sherlock, came in, didn't think it was that big a deal because the door was open. And while they were praying, she heard the whole prayer and little Terry and all this. And so when they were done, my mom walked out and Mrs. Sherlock walked over to the principal and said, what grade would that little fellow be in? And the principal said, well, I don't know. I guess he would have to do the second grade all over again. She gets a great big smile on her face. That's my class this year. He says, yes, and your class is already full this year. She says, I have a good feeling about that boy. And she left. And on her own, she went and she called my mom and said, you bring him to school. I'll take care of him. And let me tell you this. I'll never forget that very first day of class. Mrs. Sherlock is doing tucking up front. All of a sudden, you could hear a squeak, squeak, squeak. She turned around and said, who's making that noise in my classroom? And it was me. I had my desk and I was dragging it to the corner. She says, what do you think you're doing? I said, I always get to sit in the back and I get the color too. She said, color and sit in the back. Well, not in my classroom. 
she picked up the desk, brought it to the front row, and sat it down and said, you're going to sit right here. Now, I'm going to give the rest of the kids their assignment, and I'll be right back. I'm thinking, I like this lady. Whoa. Well, she came back, and she had a Bible with her. She says, all right, well, I'm going to just open up the Bible, and we're going to work on your reading. Just tell me, what do the letters look like? And I looked at her, and I said, I can't read. She says, what did you just say? I said, I can't. She says, do you believe in God? I said, yes. Do you believe that with God, all things are possible? Yes. Well, I better never hear the word can't, don't quit, give up, or you're going to get it. All I'm asking you to do is to try. What does the letter look like? And once again, I said, I can't. She says, wait right here. I have the cure. She came back. I'm thinking she's going to come back with some glasses or a magnifying glass. And she came back with a 12-inch ruler. Now, some of us are old enough to know what a ruler meant in a teacher's hand. In fact, some of the kids need rulers nowadays, but I won't go into that now. You didn't hear me say that. She said, if you make one more negative word out of that mouth without trying, you're going to get it. I'm thinking, surely she's not going to hit me. I said, I told you, I can't. She took that ruler and went pow on my hand. And from that moment on, I thought she was the meanest lady in the world, and I hated her. Every recess, I had to stay 15 minutes into the recess. She would take out her Bible and her ruler. We're going to work on your reading. After school, the buses would line up and the kids could play. I'll be in the classroom with a ruler and a Bible. Day after day after day. But friends, at the end of five months, guess who was reading for the first time in his life? At age 10 years old, Terry read his very first sentence ever, talking about the power of God. So friends, that's why I say that with God, nothing is impossible. In fact, uh, um, President Wisby would appreciate this. Um, when I made it to the White House, anyone who works within five feet of the president of the United States and you have a gun, you have to take what they call a presidential psychological evaluation. And that's just a fancy test to see if you're crazy or not. That's what it boils down to. And so you have CIA agents, FBI, we're all taking this test together, three days of testing. At the very end of the test, they said everyone had passed. So we're all high-fiving each other. They said, except we would like to see one person. And Airman Johnson, where is he at? And one of the agents walked by me and said, you must have cheated. They're going to get you, man. So I'm thinking, I'm about to get arrested. And so I'm waiting, letting everybody leave the room. And finally, when the last person left, I go up to the instructor. She looks at me and says, I want to shake your hand. I said, okay. She says, well, I've called ABC News. They'll be here. CNN said they're bringing their cameras. NBC, they're all coming. This is so exciting. We're taking bets on you downstairs. Okay. Bets on me, okay. She says, well, uh, don't you know? I said, ma'am, no, what? You're gonna be the first handicapped person to work for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Handicap. <laughs> she says, don't you know you have dyslexia and you have one of the worst cases we've ever seen, but the craziest thing is you're reading at a, almost at a normal level. This is not making sense. So we're taking bets downstairs to figure out what they use. So she started naming all these fancy formulas and this and glass. I said, man, I've never heard of any of that stuff. She says, well, how'd you, how'd you learn to read? You should have seen the look on her face when I said, Mrs. Sherlock and a Bible and a ruler. 
She says, you know we're gonna do a background investigation on you. You better tell us the truth. I said, man, I'm telling you. And I'll never forget, they went to our Christian high school and they uh, met with the principal and they couldn't tell them why, the FBI couldn't, couldn't tell them why they were there. All they could say is by order of the president of the United States, we need to see every file or record you have on Terry Johnson. And they said, the principal looked at them and said, I knew this was gonna happen one day. I, I knew it, I knew this was coming. <laughs> Maybe that plan hooky, Randy, to kind of just. <laughs> but in my actual White House presidential files, it says the only thing we can trace him learning to read was a teacher using a ruler and a Bible in the second grade. Friends, if I could fast forward. A few years ago, I was asked to speak at the Oregon State Penitentiary because what you will discover, there are a lot of young men and women who are locked up that have learning disabilities like me. They didn't have a mama like me who was aggressive and did all that and, and this life just happened to them. And so every chance that I would get, if I'm asked to speak somewhere, I would try to get into a prison to speak. And so I was at home visiting once and they arranged for me to go to the Oregon State Penitentiary and the chaplain there, um, he says, Terry, we're gonna do something we've never done before. We're gonna bring in as many prisoners as we can with diverse backgrounds, because I believe they need to hear the story. And especially you been from Oregon and been from Portland, they're gonna be able to relate. So friends, I get there, they have a stage set up and there's a door behind me and they said, if anything were to happen, all we're going to do is slam you through that door, drag you through the hallway, there's a car in the courtyard and we'll try to get you out of here as fast as we can. If you're willing to sign the form, to say that's okay. And I signed the form. <laughs> and so I get there and once the room filled up, I understood what they were talking about. There were Crips, Bloods, Stinheads, Neo-Nazis. Because they had simply made the announcement that there's someone from the White House that wants to talk to you guys. So they came from everywhere. And the chaplain said, Terry, when you're done talking, don't even pray because it's such a touchy thing and they're not gonna understand. Just simply go through the back door as soon and it'll be our job to get them out of here. So I did my talk and in the first part of my talk, I noticed there was a gentleman in the very back they brought in and what stood out, only those on the platform could see him because they had a special chair for him at the back, back of the room he had handcuffs on, had a chain that went to something around his waist and another chain that went to shackles on his ankle. He had four guards around him with all their nightsticks out and they sat him in the chair and they all sat around him the whole time I was speaking. And at the end of my talk, I felt like saying, there are some of you here today, this is not what your mothers and grandfathers and fathers meant for you. You have so much more potential. Would you just allow me to pray for you? I will never forget the first guy who stood up, a neo-Nazi bald, raised his hand, tears coming down his face. Brother, pray for me. My grandmother would pray for me. Would you pray for me? Then another one and another one. And finally, the whole, to this day, I had never seen anything like it. These guys are crying. They're raising their hands. Even the guards are raising their hands crying. <laughs> and then I noticed the gentleman in the very, very, very back of the room with all the guards and handcuffs and all the stuff on him, he stood up. And as soon as he stood up, the guards pushed him back down again. 
He tried to stand again. They pushed him down. They're almost fighting. I'm thinking, if he wants to stand for prayer, what harm is that? So even though they told me not to go off the platform, I go off the platform. And the prisoners are coming closer, trying to touch me and hug me, and I'm just going towards the back. And I get to the final part there, and they're fighting all. I said, stop. If this guy wants prayer, what harm is that? The guards backed away, and they let him stand. And then this guy goes over to me, gets with the inches of my face, and simply says, you don't remember me, do you? Now, if I knew someone so bad that they had to have handcuffs, shackles, four guards, I think I would remember him just a little bit. <laughs> I, my brother, I don't, it's me, Jeff. Who sat next to you in the second grade before they put you in the corner? The first time in over 30-something years, I saw a classmate from the second grade. He says, Terry, all I can tell you is you better be so glad your mother did what she did for you. My mother just listened to the people and said, oh, they know what they're talking about. And they end up bringing me to McLaren where everyone said you were going to be. And when I got there, you weren't there. I always wondered what happened to you. He says, Terry, all I can tell you, the place was horrible. They wouldn't even let us eat with silverware. We had to eat with our hands. He says, by the time I was 15 years old, I had been arrested 17 times because I would run away. They would bring me back there. I would run away, come back. He says, I would always tell them, I know I can't read good, but I love math. He says, no one would believe me. He says, finally, when I turned 18, they stopped looking for me. and I just started selling drugs in the streets. He says, I want you to do something. Go to the Oregonian. That's our newspaper in Oregon. Put in the word human calculator and see what will happen. He said, that was my street name, the human calculator. Because even though I couldn't read good, I could do all my drugs transactions in my head, never use paper. He says, I became the biggest marijuana seller from San Francisco to Seattle. Everything came through me. When they finally arrested me, I was making over $100,000 a week. He says, read the article. And they tied some murders and different things on, different things. And so now I'm here sentenced to 80 years. He says, Terry, I just don't understand. What made the difference between you and me? And that's when it became very clear. The power of words. Words of encouragement from my mom. Words from Mrs. Sherlock. Those words made a difference. Just a year ago, being back in Portland, I can tell you this, for over 40 years, I've been trying to find Mrs. Sherlock to thank her. Because I went back that very next year, my mom and I to find her, she wasn't there anymore. And I looked, and all I had the name was Mrs. Sherlock. The stool had changed hands at least four times. No one even remembered who I was talking about. And so I was asked to speak at the 120th anniversary of the YMCA, a big event in Portland. And I shared some of the story. 
And at the end, I said, well, you know, I would love to be able to find her to thank her one day. I don't even know her first name. And someone yelled out, her name is Connie and she lives in Missouri. <laughs> After 40 years, just a year ago. So I meet with the guy afterwards and says, yeah, you don't know. She left when you left. That was the end of her. We never saw her again. And then the stool changed and all that. I said, you know how I can reach her? He says, he says I don't know, maybe Facebook. And sure enough, Connie's on Facebook. <laughs> I was able to connect with her after 40 years to simply say thank you. Let me tell you the reality of that phone call. Connie and I and my wife, Car, we've met with her a few times. And let me tell you the reality. In my mind as a second grader, I said, Connie, I, you're this old lady. I thought you wouldn't even be living now. She says, Terry, I was 24 years old when I was your teacher. I said, Connie, I, I thought you had this, you, you were so experienced and you just was such a great teacher. She says, in reality, you were my first class after graduating high school. After, excuse me, after graduating college. You were the first class that I ever had in my life. She was just 24 years old. Not a rich lady. I said, Mr. what happened to you? She said, you never knew this, and your mom didn't know this, didn't know this. The principal gave me an ultimatum to call your mother and tell her not to bring you to my class because he did not want the stool to get a reputation of taking kids in that can't learn. I looked at that principal and I said, no that I am not gonna take my word back that I gave to that boy's mom. She says the next year when the contracts came up, he did not renew my contract. Basically, I was fired. Thinking this, she was fired because of me. Connie went on to say, I never taught a class again in my life. I only taught that one year out of school and you're my first class. She says, the only reason I used the Bible with you because I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I'm thinking she had this magic formula. She says, you were always so negative about yourself and saying how stupid you were and you couldn't learn. And that's why I brought the ruler out. I had to change your thinking fast. And all I can remember is she started crying as I'm talking to her on that phone. And she started saying, Thank you, Lord. I know I did the right thing. Well, just four months ago, an agency in Washington, D.C. decided to make a film of this for PBS of Connie and I meeting for the first time in 43 years to say thank you. And this is us meeting after 43 years. So graduates, let me leave you with this advice. We don't realize the ripple effect of the power of words. Connie was just 24 years old. She never knew 
that she would inspire a dyslexic kid who went on to serve three presidents of the United States to be able to share the story of how Connie helped him in over 72 countries around the world, all 50 states. 43 years later, it wasn't until she realized the effect of the power of her words. And if a 24-year-old Connie could use words to inspire and to help, to heal, imagine what you can do. So I leave you with this, what we started with in the very beginning. Words are the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively using words of despair. Words have energy and power with the ability to help, to heal, to hinder, to hurt, to harm, to humiliate, to humble. Remember, your words have power. God bless you.